welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest. Stanley K. Ridgely is a clinical full professor of management at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. Dr. Ridgely has also studied at Moscow State University and the Institut des Gestions Sociales in Paris. He is a former military intelligence officer who served in West Berlin and near the Czech-German border where he received the George S. Patton Award for Leadership from the 7th Army NCO Academy. In addition to his teaching, Dr. Ridgely teaches lectures widely in the United States and internationally. He is Drexel's faculty sponsor for Turning Point USA, serves on Drexel's faculty senate, and in Drexel University's Institutional Review Board. He is a frequent contributor to national media, including Newsmax and American Greatness, and is also the highly praised faculty instructor for the course, quote, strategic thinking, end quote, in the DVD series, The Great Courses, Dot com. Stan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lance. I do appreciate it. We've uh, planned for this for a long time, and I've been building up and building up, and my anticipation, I hope, is, is going to be expressed in my enthusiasm. Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So we got, I think we connected on LinkedIn. I think we were just kind of liking yeah. similar content on there. And um, and I reached out to Stan after he mentioned his book, and I'll hold it up to the camera here if everybody can see it. Uh, maybe they can't because of the green screen, but it's called Brutal Minds, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. I've read the book. I'm interested in what you have to say um, in regards to higher education and, and all, all that's going on there. I'm also a, a, uh, I'm a lecturer. I'm not a full professor like you at, at University of Colorado Boulder. I've experienced many of these things that you speak about in the book. And I think maybe we could just start off with the title of the book. Tell us what, what you mean by the term brutal minds. Well, brutal minds are virtually the, the folks who don't subscribe to the university as probably you and I do as a crucible of the best that has been thought and said, and that those of us who are engaged in the faculty are, are passing that legacy of that patrimony on to subsequent generations. The idea of logic, uh, reason, scientific method, progress, these are all values that we hold dear and that uh, this is, the university is a crucible of, of that uh, contains those values. Now, brutal minds are people who don't really subscribe to that. Brutal minds are the folks on the campuses who want to change that. And they have a motto and it's called boldly transforming higher education. These are not faculty for the most part, not mm -hmm. faculty. They are non-faculty bureaucrats and administrators who, um, who, who populate uh, an ever-growing bureaucracy in almost all campuses. At Stanford, I believe they have as many bureaucrats as they do students. And if they were simply tending to their knitting, which is why they were hired to begin with through the side door of the university, things like, you know, you want to keep the, the sound system working, you want to keep the pizza hot, uh, you want to make the dorm room assignments. If that was what they were engaged in, I don't think there would be any problem. But that's not what they're engaged in. They have created on the campuses what they call a co-curriculum in which they teach workshops, they teach caucuses, uh, and these are required. And they even offer their fake courses, fake faculty, fake transcripts. Rutgers and St. John's are two of the universities offer fake transcripts. These people are engaged in what I consider a kind of a nefarious um, activity. And that is they are engaged in, and I use the term in my book, 
brainwashing, which is mm-hmm. really thought reform. The idea, what's the purpose? To change the belief system of the people who are targeted. I'm very specific. I'm very explicative in, in the, how the process works, who is doing it, where it's occurring, and what we can do about it. Those yeah. are the brutal minds. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, your goal, their goal, you think, is to, they're, they're trying to change the minds of those of those sort of malleable new yes. minds that are coming into the university. There was a, there was a quote that really, not a quote, but a, uh, a statement you made in the book that really st- struck out to me. And it made me think of, I, I'm, I'm a guy who makes memes, uh, political memes. Uh, and I don't mean to digress here, but like Elon Musk shared one of mine over the weekend. And I was like completely thrilled that somebody of that caliber the messaging would get out there. Yeah. Um, so it, I, I can only think of, I, I did an alliteration on this. And so what you said was uh, where they burn books, they will ultimately burn people. And I thought where they destroy statues, they will ultimately destroy people. Um, would you agree? Because I mean, we're seeing that happen on campus too. They're just r- r- ripping down history. Right. Well, this this is a, a sad repetition of what we've seen in history again and again and again. And I think the quote uh, about burning books and peoples from Heinrich Heine and his his uh, not his play Al Mansur, um, and he was very prescient with respect to the Nazi regime that he was referring to, and the idea of statues being torn down. This is not. This also is not new. You can go to the. Uh, Search on Google images, cultural revolution, statues being torn down. And the whole point of the cultural revolution under Mao in the 1960, 10 years, 1966 to 1976, was to destroy uh, a venerable ancient Chinese culture. And part of that was destroying statues, was burning scrolls, was getting rid of what they call the four O's, for, uh, culture and people and, and, and learning, and to replace that with the... Uh, uh, very similar to what they did in the French Revolution by declaring the year one and we're going to destroy the the ancien regime, we're going to destroy everything that has led up to the present time and begin anew. And this is what Mao was trying to do with uh, the Cultural Revolution. And part of that, as you know, was tearing down statues. Um, I think that we are blessed with our statue destroying that this was a tiny minority, radical minority that was doing this. And we can only bemoan the uh, the thought processes of the authorities who allowed this unfortunate happenstance to occur. I, I agree that I think in the literal sense of when people saw, you know, some of these statues like in, in the deep south getting torn down. But what about what about the idea that some of the icons are getting taken away? You know, you think about the Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Jemima uh, you know, taking off that from like corporations. So there's this corporate whitewash that's happening. So like, I mean, wouldn't that argument mean that it's, it's actually much bigger and there's a, there's yeah. In that sense. I think that the statue, the tearing down of statues is, is kind of a, I'm not going to say tip of the iceberg, I'm going to cliche like that, but it has, it's a harbinger. I like that. It's a harbinger of what's to come. And the idea of, you know, the Aunt Jemima examples, she was one of the most successful entrepreneurs in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I, when I say icon, I mean, she's, a, she's a, a, someone to be celebrated, not removed from, from a, a syrup container. Uh, I, again, it's the uh, small-minded, it is the ideologically driven people who don't recognize the reality of our world and instead measure reality against their own alternative, which really doesn't exist except in their own in their own minds, and trying to, to, to shape reality that we live in according to this uh, this, uh, this imaginary uh, construct that they are, are adhering to. 
What would you say to the average parent listening to this interview about their desire to send their their son or their daughter to university in 2023, knowing that they're going to encounter these brutal minds? Well, I would say that you have to stay connected. Number one, stay connected to your students. Don't listen to anyone on that campus, wherever you decide to go, where, who, who's, wherever you decide to pay that exorbitant tuition, don't listen to the voices there who try to say, well, you need to, you need to let your student chart his or her own way and, and we'll take care of that and usher your student into the world, the intellectual world um, uh, that they're going to be surrounded with for the next four to five years. Um, don't listen to that. Stay involved with your students, find out what they're doing. Most of all, recognize that you're gonna be parents. You will be offered a, what's called a parent's portal or some, mm. some version of that, where they're, they're gonna keep in touch with you and let you know what their student is, there is doing. Well, there's nothing of worth that's gonna be found in a parent's portal other than you know, when classes start, whenever, uh, you know, whenever the, the spring fest is gonna begin and, and the latest doings ha happens to, on camp. No, no, there's nothing really worthwhile. What your student will be imbibing in these non-faculty, non-curricular uh, events is uh, an abominable ideology that is quite, quite frankly neo-Marxist um, and is grounded in the, uh, the tenets, many of the tenets that we found in the Cultural Revolution. So I would say to parents, be aware that this is what's going on. Make sure that your student is aware of what is going on because half of the battle is understanding when someone is trying to change your mind or change your belief system. And there's a very sophisticated program that most of these people um, utilize. These, these programs are published in manuals. Uh, I call them brainwash manuals, but they're basically, I'll give you one right here. Let me show you one. Yeah. This is, there we go. It's called, this is called Designing Transformative Multicultural Initiatives. And we get it up there. Can you see it? Okay. I it's coming in and out. Yep. I can see it. Coming a in little and bit. Out. Okay. There you go. There yeah. it is. Someone's trying to keep you from seeing it. Uh, the uh, that that contains a a model called the privilege identity um, uh, privilege identity uh, exploration model or PIE PIE, mm -hmm. and this model is eight stages, which basically and this says it in the book says it's going to deconstruct relay family relationships, friend relationships, and be very destabilizing to a person's sense of self. That is the first step in the brainwash to attack a person's sense of self to attack a person's identity and to destabilize that, to make them more malleable for the change of belief system that's upcoming. I'll quote to you from another manual called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, uh, quote, use low risk self-disclosure and interaction in the early stages to establish a norm of self-disclosure at the outset. If the environment is perceived as supportive, a person's defenses may be more permeable. Now think about that for a second, a person's defenses may be more permeable. And during this phase, a students undergo, quote, challenges to their belief system in an environment that is supportive and trustworthy. And so they're undergoing, they're doing two things at once. Right now they're attacking the belief system and the sense of identity, but they're doing it surrounding you with a sense of acceptance and warmth and, oh, we're trusting you, we're celebrating you because you're you. Um, and we want you to make yourself vulnerable and establish a norm of trust whenever there's no reason no discernible reason to trust these people at all. And so if you're aware of that alone, and I offer in my book, I offer a series of tells, ideological markers that you can recognize when this is happening so that you know that you are in a threat situation rather than something that appears to be benign because everyone seems so accepting, very intoxicating like flattery always is. Uh, oh, I've never experienced something this wonderful and, and intoxicatingly accepting. These people must be great. 
Well, they're really not. Ask yourself why they're doing this. And one answer is they're trying to change your belief system. Yeah. Yeah. I think the awareness is, is critical. I'm, and I'm glad that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. So the people that are considering sending their, their children to school are just fully aware, but that's the, I agree. That's step one. Um, you made several analogies in the book to German brown shirts, Chinese red guards, and what's happening yeah. with the canceling of whiteness on, on campus. Um, how is this analogy possible? Because that might sound shocking to some people. Well, you're never more than a couple of steps away from people dressing up in, in uniforms and marching around and, and uh, you know, destroying things and attacking others. Oh, you look at Antifa with their black uniforms and their masks. And they're so, so proud of their ideology. They want to wear their, they got to wearing masks to hide their, their identity. Um, and, and violence and this type of shoutdowns is kind of pri primordial, primeval mm -hmm. level of discourse. When you've sunk to this level, uh, you know you're dealing with brutal minds, and uh, I think that that is a uh, a, a marker that we can we can uh, uh, utilize to uh, judge whether you're dealing with people of good faith or simply dealing with thugs. And and Antifa is a perfect example of that. There are other examples that you can find on on YouTube, I'm sure. Um, but the idea that you've got people marching around and they're protesting, and what they're protesting is problematic in itself. And the idea they're protesting what you're saying and what you're saying is was mainstream just last year uh, and that kind of thing. So people who shout down others, you'll see the, the, the coarsening of our public discourse on Twitter, for instance. And I get I get some of this on LinkedIn and places like that where people are not so uh, so uh, I would say intellectually uh, accepting like you on LinkedIn. But instead, they come after me. And what you find is the. The, uh, the brown shirt equivalent on Twitter where people are just name calling and, and they, use, they pull out their half dozen uh, cliches that they use. You, you see they've used it before. They're ready to reflexively use it no matter what you say. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is this coarsening of our discourse is something that we're just going to have to deal with because Twitter's not going away. What we have to do is utilize uh, avenues of discourse that are reasonable, fact-filled, fact-based. And uh, this is one point I want to point out to anyone who might want to criticize, criticize my book. If there's anything at all in my book, Brutal Minds, that is incorrect or anyone has been misquoted, I'm happy to change it publicly on a show like this and then change it in the uh, subsequent edition. But I don't feel that I'll be having to change. I know I'm not going to change anything because it's all laid out. It's all factual and it's all built. And I should tell you, the book was twice as long as it is now. Uh, of course, publishers being publishers always want you to cut down to something that is usable. And it was gracious. It was really a blessing for me. It was 180,000 words. And now it's down to, to 75,000 words. So it's not a heavy lift. Um, yeah, I read it. Yeah, I read it. Uh, if, if, if people are, I would agree, Stan. I mean, I read it on uh, two two plane trips back and forth to Fargo. Um, and knocked it out of the park. It, it was great. There was another term you used in the book that I would love for you to unpack for everybody, and that is sure. big A anti a big A anti racism. What is that? Well, first I'll, I'll juxtapose big A anti racism with little A anti racism. I think the little A anti racism is the anti when we hear anti racism, that's what we think of. We think of the little yeah. Well, sure, I'm not I'm, I'm not racist, and my friends are not. In fact. Uh, I look around and I don't see any. As Randall Kennedy, who was a law professor at uh, Har at Harvard, wrote in a famous article, um, uh, he says that campuses are the least racist uh, places in America. Okay, 
And the idea that we believe treating other people with respect uh, by virtue of their common humanity, uh, speaking to the CEO and say, well, the, I would say the person who cleans our classroom is the same way you speak to the president of the university, offering that because we don't know what's what. You know, what path people have trod. Um, you accept people regardless of their color, their creed, their ethnicity. I've taught around the world. I've taught in Russia and in China and in Colombia and Singapore and Spain and I uh, in France. And, uh, you know, this is a kind of a cosmopolitan view that I have for myself that I, I developed is you treat people with respect. And that's all you really need. And treat people as human beings who have something important to tell you. Um, that's anti-racism with a small a, the, the prejudice, abandon the prejudice, abandon the stereotypes, that kind of thing. Big A, anti-racism, however, something completely different. That is um, an, an ideology that has evolved from critical pedagogy, that has emerged from critical theory. It is an ideology that, that views people not in the way I described with small a anti-racism, but it views people as a binary society is is constructed of a population of people who are divided into good and evil oppressors and oppressed exploiters and exploited and you can identify these exploiters uh, and exploited by the color of their skin or superficial characteristics this is a bastardization of karl marx's notion of class consciousness and the class struggle where you could identify people according to their class and then you would treat those people according to their class uh, bourgeoisie as exploiters um, and, and proletariat as people who needed to be lifted up, that sort of thing. What critical theory, uh, neo-Marxism has done is expanded this definition of class uh, warfare to racial warfare. And now you can identify the villains and victims by virtue of their superficial characteristics. And if you're a person who's supposed to be a victim and you don't believe that you're a victim, well, that simply means that you're defective. And that the doctrine tells you that you have internalized white supremacy uh, and we need to educate you out of that to explain that you are indeed oppressed by this invisible system. Um, where, and this is called bringing you to critical consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I, Lance, are people who I'm assuming are, are afflicted with false consciousness, which means simply that we've not arrived at critical consciousness, which means you accept big A anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's kind of circular, it's tautological where well, if you accept a big A anti-racism, you've acknowledged your sins, the imaginary sins of the past, then you have arrived at critical consciousness. This is kind of, a, again, a bastardization of class consciousness from Marx. They've expanded the definition. Well, what's critical consciousness? Well, that simply means that you have left behind false consciousness. So again, you see it's a circular uh, kind of thing. It means you're educated, that you can perceive the scales have fallen from your eyes, that you can perceive the contradictions in capitalist society, and that you can perceive the relationships of privilege and power, uh, and you're going to work for the rest of your life against those contradictions and uh, oppression in society in all its forms. Sounds like a horrible existence if you end up there. No, I'm not there. Yeah, me neither, me neither. Um Interesting. So uh, thank you for breaking that down. Um, you already mentioned this a little bit earlier, and that was brainwashing. So yeah. break down for everybody listening. How is brainwashing occurring on campuses currently? And, and then what is the criteria of them when this happens? 
Okay, first of all, so I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to tell you what brainwashing is because people think, oh, sure. that must be Manchurian candidate with strobe lights and, and pressure and electrodes, that kind of thing, and sleep, sleep deprivation. No, it's not, not at all. Brainwashing is, uh, is mentioned in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in terms of the damage that it can do, the psychological damage it can do to individuals who are subjected to brainwashing, or the more, I would say, the, the, the better term would be thought reform. Uh, it arise, arose, it was invented by a fellow by the name of Kurt Lewin, an MIT a social psychologist in the 1940s. And when he did this, he developed this technique to address criminal uh, crime, to address people who are criminals and, and try to get them to reform. And it's three stages. It's unfreezing a person's belief system, changing it, then refreezing that belief system so there's no backsliding in on the college campus, but I should say it begins with the attack on a person's sense of self, sense of identity to dislodge it, to destabilize it. Um, the brainwashers on the campus call it something else, but social justice education. And the three stages that I just mentioned to you have, you know, they've been renamed, given different names, but it's still three stages. Uh, one manual called uh, Teaching Diversity and Social Justice on the college campuses. Uh, defines it this way, or breaks it down the three stages this way. Number one, defending. Two, surrendering. Three, transforming. Uh, I kind of mentioned a little bit of this earlier, whenever they're, they're attacking the person's belief system or sense of identity. In this surrendering phase, where they're changing the belief system, here's what they say they're doing. Quote, the process is, quote, confusing, disorienting, frightening for students. Students might feel out of control without known boundaries or familiar ground and may experience strong emotions such as anger, resentment, a sense of betrayal by those who were supposed to tell them the truth about the social world. They're talking about parents there. The last stage of, you know, uh, sealing it up and preventing the backsliding, they call it doing the work. Hmm. Uh, a new set of beliefs becomes home base for interpreting experience and creating meaning. The past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference, end quote. So that's defending, surrendering, and transforming. Uh, this is a manual, where am I getting this from? I'm getting this from what they say. This is a manual whereby students and, I'm sorry, student teachers and social justice educators are trained to do this sort of thing. Beverly Daniel Tatum, a psychologist, talks about the conveyor, conveyor belt of, of conversion. Daryl Wing Sue at Teachers College of Columbia talks about the conveyor belt. We're moving students from false consciousness to critical consciousness, what I just uh, relayed to you. Lisa Spanierman, who is a psychologist at Arizona, uh, actually, I've read a, a, an article by her where she says that guilt, the idea of guilt, can be generated in most anyone regarding anything. You can be made to feel guilty about something, even if you have absolutely nothing to do with it. How does she use that or advocate that? Well, you can generate guilt in white students by showing them videos of oppression, this or that, and make them feel guilty about events that had nothing to do with them. And then you can mobilize that sense of guilt to the enterprise that you want them to, to work in social justice education, to work for a better world in their terms. So this is the brainwash. It's done, now you asked me the second part, it's done on campuses by some faculty, who are primarily in teacher education, uh, who are working in social justice education and advanced degrees for in education schools, but mainly, mainly by student affairs. I'm in academic affairs faculty. Over here, we have student affairs, which are the bureaucracy that I talk about in the book. These people all have the same ideology. Now, there may, there may be outliers over here, and here, but 
by and large, 90% of them have this critical consciousness ideology, and they run a fake curriculum. They call it the Coke curriculum. They have fake instructors, fake courses, and they even offer the fake transcripts uh, that I mentioned. Uh, Rutgers and St. John's University offer fake transcripts for this fake curriculum run by fake faculty. And they are not faculty. They are people with online master's degrees and education. Um, I actually have witnessed one um, that was run by a dance therapist, a poet clerk, and a human lactation expert. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I I'm believe not, you. I'm just I'm laughing because it's, it's all it's, so absurd. Yeah, keep going. It's on video. And the fact is that these people are, are, are offering a, uh, a caucus uh, discussion of Robin DeAngelo's white fragility. Now, I'm not seeing a whole lot of expertise there. What I'm seeing are people who are ideologically cramped and they are, they are motivated. Maybe they're motivated by good feelings. I don't know. Motivated by a better world. I think that we should never doubt the motives of these people. They probably think they're doing good. And if they believed in angels, they would be on their side. Yeah. Uh, you're on mute, Lance. Sorry about that. I, I'm, I have a slight cold, so I'm coughing yeah. and trying not to capture that in the audio. Gotcha. Uh, what I was going to say is, are those the same folks that you were saying when you, you cite them as, are these the amateur psychotherapists? Yes, they are. In the book? Yeah. Yes, yeah. they are. I thought, that, got... I thought that term was so fitting. Well, they are. They're people who read a book like the one I just quoted from on how to apply this psychotherapy. It's what it is, a psychotherapy. They're utilizing psychological manipulation techniques that are well-known, behavior modification techniques. They're not psychologists. Some of them actually are, very few of them are. And they teach in departments of psychology. The vast bulk of these people, 90% of them are not. They have no license to practice psychology. They have no license to utilize behavior modification techniques. And what they're doing is probably you know, quasi-legal in the sense that it violates uh, the prescriptions, proscriptions, I should say, in the Office of Human Research Protections of experimenting on people to, to, to obtain a change result or a changed outcome in their, their perception, soliciting private information, then turning that information around and utilizing it against them. Um, that is, is stuff that has to be run by the Institutional Review Board, people like myself, to look at this and say, you know what, you're not qualified to do this. Uh, and you have to get our approval whether you're going to do this. And probably the answer is going to be no. So they don't do it. Yeah. Can you break down the privilege identity exploration model for us? Well, I wish I could. Let me tell you about the, the PI okay. privilege identification. Well, I'll, I'll show you the book where it's found. I, mean, the, yeah. I mentioned this earlier in the several articles. What's really interesting, I found interesting, is I read this stuff all the time. And so I've read the, the iterations of this PIE and it's it's was uh, created by Sherry K. Watt, who is at the University of Iowa. She's a, she's a, a high, uh, high uh, poobah in the, uh, the whole social justice education and brainwashing um, enterprise. Uh, the privilege identity explanation model is, is a model she thought she was borrowing from Sigmund Freud. Um, and she actually said this in her first iteration of this, I think in 2005 or 2007, and I, I couldn't find it anywhere when I, I do a lot of research on this. There was no Sigmund Freud uh, model of this. It turns out she didn't mean Sigmund Freud. She meant Anna Freud. Mm -hmm. And she meant Anna Freud from 1937. Not, and, and, and Sigmund Freud had died long before that. Now, this seems to me to be kind of a shabby way of constructing a psychological model. Number one, pulling it from someone you thought was, you know, over 100 years ago, only to find out it's not him. It's someone else, his, his daughter. Um, and that you're going to put together this conveyor belt. That's the best way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. It is a conveyor belt. Now this, this um, 
visualization is really not mine. This is what they say. They're going to put students on a conveyor belt of conversion, moving them, as I said earlier, you and me, from false consciousness to critical consciousness. I think the vernacular today would be woke. That's what they mean by woke, okay? Critical consciousness. Now, this, this uh, privileged identification exploration model is constructed, like most brainwashing programs, eight steps, bringing you, the student, along the way to critical consciousness. Uh, it is grounded somewhat in Janet Helm's racial identity model from the 1990s, uh, which is a stage-by-stage -stage, uh, uh, model of how a, a person who happens to be white will construct an identity. And she shows how a positive identity can be constructed, basically utilizing a brainwash method that basically sh shepherding you along so that you are... Um, believe that you are, have committed sins of the past, uh, you have nothing to do with this, this, this situation, but we're going to make you feel guilty about it. That's another one of those. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum has a conveyor belt. Uh, Daryl Wing Sue has his own conveyor belt. They love this, this, this um, uh, metaphor. Vision. Yeah, the metaphor of vision. Yeah, 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 yeah that makes sense. Uh, so if there's only a minority of faculty doing this, why is it such a big problem? Well, it's a big problem because because of the co-curriculum. I mentioned, I, I think that um, I'm going to mention now for the first time, the disparity of liberals to conservative on the campus. Now, we all know in the faculty that this is a, an issue. I mean, it's a, it's a reality. Samuel Abrams' research, he's from Sarah Lawrence College, shows that there's a six to one, you know, six to one ratio of liberals to conservative in the faculty. Well, we can deal with that. We've always had to deal with that. But in the bureaucracy that I'm you know, laying at the feet of the bureaucracy, this problem, the disparity is 12 to 1. Oh, my gosh. 12 to 1. Why is this important? Well, over here, the faculty, we all teach different courses. We're experts in different you know, um, subject matter. Over here in the student affairs, where they're really supposed to just keep the pizza hot, you know, make sure you get the dorm assignment right, organize a game of ultimate Frisbee, they believe they're doing something else. They believe that they are, quote, college educators just like the faculty. They want to be considered college educators. They have uh, reached beyond their mandate for which they were hired. And now they're boldly transforming uh, uh, the university, boldly transforming higher education. This is what they claim that they're doing. This is what they say that they're doing. And they're doing it by way of this co-curriculum, uh, which exists uniformly ideological on virtually every college campus in America. Uh, and you're saying to yourself, well, how is that possible that colleges as different as Berkeley and Duke and Chicago and Florida and Texas would all have this same bureaucratic cant? How is that possible? Well, you only have to do it. It's people. Oh, is that a conspiracy? So, mm -hmm. Well, no, of course not. I mean, I tell you that there's the federal government's taking or money's disappearing out of your, your paycheck every month. And I tell you, well, it's the federal government. You say, well, that's a conspiracy. Well, of course not. There's a mechanism. It's the IRS collecting and enforcing. You see a printout every month. They're taking, oh, okay, I see the point. Well, when I say that this is lockstep ideology, my response is, what do you, all you have to do is look at the mechanism whereby it's happening. You have education schools, which has been, been completely taken over by Paulo Freire, neo-Marxist, neo-Maoist um, uh, ideologues. And they have created, in the last 25 years, advanced degrees in things like student affairs, higher educational leadership, higher education administration. And they are uniformly trained in this ideology I'm talking about, bringing students from uh, false consciousness to critical consciousness. These people graduate. Where do they go? They become faculty members? No. They move into positions in the bureaucracy, mm. positions created just for them. 
And then they begin to administer this co-curriculum where these caucuses, these learning about race or difficult dialogues, that kind of thing. The third element of this is they go off campus to their clubs, to professional organizations. You know, you build, you know every, every uh, profession has an organization where you go and you, you meet other people and you network, that kind of thing. Their profession, professional organizations or clubs are called ACPA and NASPA. I'm not going to break those out for you, but they're, they're in, incredibly influential. They are completely, completely ideologically uh, rooted in this uh, Paulo Freire neo-Marxist uh, critical racialist doctrine. They have institutes, conferences, books, articles, journals, and they propound this boldly transforming higher education for Marx and Mao uh, in a kind of a we speak with one voice mentality. Why is this important? Is this a dead end? I mean, no, no. These organizations set the standards, the academic standards for the education schools and these act these higher education programs. So you see a closing of the circle mm -hmm. here. These off-campus clubs set the standards for the education schools that train the bureaucrats that go into the into the uh, higher education uh, positions in student affairs, who then circle back around, receive awards and speak at conferences, and then set the standards again. So you have this closed circle of vice. And that's the mechanism whereby we see the sameness of this ideology nationwide. There are some, some exceptions, Liberty University, perhaps, Hillsdale, Grove City, things like that. Now, I apologize if I left any colleges out that may be doing uh -huh. the right thing. Yeah. What a horribly incestuous um, but but truthful way of, of how this is operating. I mean, I'm really glad that you broke that down in full circle. That 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 helped that gives me a better understanding of why it's such a big problem. And I hope it does yeah. for the audience too. I'm gonna read you a definition here, and this is a just a the standard definition of social justice. Uh, justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. What is your a definition of social justice though knowing what you know and that that's sort of a disguise i think of what social justice really is boiling down to at this point yes it is it's a, it's a disguise and it's a very poor disguise because it's it kind of clarifies what they mean by social the redistribution of so-called resources uh, but they never really say what those resources are are they talking about my salary are they talking about your salary are they talking about my way of life are they talking about the fact i live a certain way and that means of living has to be shifted to other folks so that we have a leveling. And I think Friedrich Hayek, uh, the, uh, the economist, I think is the greatest economist of the 20th century instead of John Maynard Keynes, he actually has a long uh, exposition of the myth of social justice, mm. how it doesn't really exist. When you put social onto justice already, you've, you've kind of ameliorated the, uh, the intent of justice. There is no social justice. Social justice means socialism. It means that, that um, you're going to have, however you want to call it, however, you know, whether it's run by the government, whether it's run by some inst nonprofit institution, it's going to redistribute wealth according to a to a, who knows what the, the yardstick is going to be. We don't know how that, that wealth is going to be redistribu redistributed. Um, I personally do not want to put power in the hands of people who are talking about uh, redistributing resources in a quote, equitable, equitable mm -hmm. manner. This is the language that was utilized by Lenin, utilized by Marx, utilized by Lenin, utilized by even Stalin, certainly utilized by Mao Zedong. And the idea that somehow this time is going to be different, I don't know how many times we've heard this, that the people who are, who are uh, intoxicated with the idea of social justice, they're, somehow it's going to be different, that we need to have this situation 
Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be the one who's running this show here, uh, this redistribution, and not you. And um, we're going to make that happen. Well, these are people who want to make something happen. My, my view is if that's what you really believe, why don't you set up a university or an institution or a, you know, a commune that is run by those principles? Do that. You can do that in the United States. That's why we have a plurality of, of viewpoints in our, in, our, in our society. Go ahead and do that. I'm sure you can find funding. You can find funding anywhere for this type of thing. Uh, you can name the people and you know, George Soros might be willing to fund this, yeah. this new equitable society to the tune of several million dollars. But we know, you know, and I know that it's going to end up badly. Um, and so that's the siren song. It's very, that what you just read is kind of intoxicating for young people, especially sure. who, and I will tell you who, who do not do not receive instruction on how that formula has been debunked again and again and again, theoretically, and also the results of that implementation of that, the bloody history of, uh, uh, for instance, I'll give you one example, you know, Communist Party of, of uh, uh, China, uh, Mao himself guilty of killing anywhere from 45 to 100 million of his own people by implementing that kind of ideology. Yeah. The, the word I always press back on with the DIE folks, you know, the diversity, uh, inclusion and equity is is the equity every single time. I, I've pressed multiple people yeah. on on this show, you know, who come at me from the left or or actually people when I've had private meetings with them. And, and that's what I would encourage everybody who's listening to is like, do not let them get away with that word, make them define it and, and drill down on what it means just keep pressing them about, well, what does that exactly mean to you? I mean, when we're actually thinking and talking about taking capital and property yeah. and, and, and ownership of things from one set of group to another, and you'll find, this is what I found, is that eventually they basically tell you that. And that, yeah. that should tell you yeah. all you need to know, that it's about, it's about coercion and power and theft. Um, and, and it's really not about actually, you know, this beautiful idea of like, we're all going to be equal. Well, that you know, congratulations on having that kind of conversation because ordinarily they'll usually devolve into something about, oh, I get you, you get that from faux news or, <laughs> or that kind of, and I say, well, you know, 2006 called, they want their cliche back. You know, you, you can't deal with the facts on the ground. This is one of the problems that we find in our public, public discourse. You're exactly right. The idea of equity is equality of outcome. Mm -hmm. The idea of equality is, is, is um, uh, equality of opportunity. Yes. We're going to do as much as we can to allow you to do as much as you are capable, given your God-given talents uh, and, and learning. Uh, equity is the equality of outcomes where no matter what your history is, you've got to earn as much as I do. You've got to have, you get an A. If someone else who is more privileged than you gets an A, that kind of thing. And, and so um, if you do pin them, manage to pin them down and you probably never will. Um, well, you have, I, not me, but you have. <laughs> pin them down and get them to acknowledge that that is exactly what they're talking about. That resources are not distributed in the first place. When we think about it, there's no central distribution center where it decides who's going to get what, when, where, how, and why. We do have individuals who inherit great wealth, uh, and they usually squander it. Mm -hmm. We also have individuals who have pulled themselves up by the metaphorical bootstraps and uh, uh, done great things. Howard... Um, Schultz of, of Starbucks coffee. I mean, he, he started from almost nothing. Uh, you find there's these, uh, these rags to riches stories, uh, rags to just respectability stories are, uh, they're, they're, they're numerous. They're in, they're, they're innumerable. And uh, so this idea, I, I think that you, you really break it down well when you, when you kind of target equity as, as uh, being somehow, as some, as illegitimate.
Yeah, and don't let them straw man you when you do that too, because they will no. try. They will try to deflect. Um, I, I'd like to read a, a something else back to you out of your book, um, because I'm curious where where it came from. And I'm sure the audience will too. So, quote: I hope now, Stan. So everybody knows Stan didn't write this. This isn't his quote. This is someone else's quote. But it's uh, as follows: quote I hope to change white my white students' understanding of racism, so they can begin to see themselves as racist. Can you explain for us? where that came from and what things like this are being now, useful in the university it, system. It, I, that sounds very familiar because I quoted it, but it's in the middle of the book and I don't have, a, I think I know, um, I think that's, and I don't think she would be um, upset even if she didn't say it. It's Lori Patton, I think is her name. I think okay. it's who did, who did that. And she is one of the brainwashers. She's one of the folks who is a member of all three of the, the three corners, the uh, student affairs clubs, the comes out of the education school and is also member of student affairs. She said this, this is kind of an explication of what the brainwash is all about. It really tells us all about her own belief system. I am hoping to uh, convey to my white students that they are guilty of this, this, and this, even if they're not. And I want them to, I want to bring them along that conveyor belt to a sense of critical consciousness. This is how they describe themselves. I'm not making this up. This is, they talk about this all the time. Probably critical consciousness is six syllables, so it's easier to say woke, which they tend to identify as somehow being educated. And again, if I can devolve, you know, go back to Plato and his Republic, uh, Plato re really predicted all of this. Plato, um, as Alfred North Whitehead said, Plato is, you know, all of philosophy are just a series of footnotes to Plato. And Plato's cave, and every high school kid uh, learns this, that uh, we exist in this world that's closed and tight and we don't really understand reality. Uh, we All we can know are the shadows on the wall. And then someone breaks out of the change and goes up to the surface and sees this as a bright new world, uh, different world than the one that we exist in the cave. Now, every, every cult believes itself to be privy to some truth that is hidden to you and me. And that is the modus operandi of people like this person you just quoted, uh, that they are privy to a reality that is denied to you and me. The scales have fallen from their eyes, that they are, can perceive the, the power and privilege relationships that we either ignore or are oblivious to, and that they're going to share that with you share that with students and bring those students along on this conveyor belt whether they want to or not not all students are as susceptible to this nonsense to this you know 23rd 2023 version of plato's cave um some of them most of them are really smart but there's a certain percentage of vulnerable people who are searching, uh, who are susceptible to the message. And that's that's very much like American cults. And I kind of, I talk about American cults in, in the book and the techniques that they use and how eerily similar they are to the techniques used by these brainwashers on the college campus. It's eerily similar because they're the same. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was asked a question a while back. I said, well, are, what, what proof do you have that this they exit Marxists? I said, well, not, I don't have proof that they've exited Marxists. I have proof that they have exited with this critical consciousness, which is kind of a, a short, short uh, hand for Marxist, um, in the sense that these folks who do the brainwashing are prolific in their writing, and they themselves assess the success rate the, of these brainwashing 
uh, they, they say, oh, we're very successful. We found these techniques to be to be uh, you know, usable and, and really fruitful. Um, and so they themselves ass assess the success rate of what they're doing. Not everyone is going to be converted. And those people, you know, like you and me probably um, are, to, you know, they're set aside for more work later on, or they're just hopeless cases uh, because they're critical thinkers and they recognize that uh, we're engaged in uh, BS. Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, percent. In part two of your book, Mm -hmm. uh, it's titled uh, Cerberus, I, I believe. I, yeah. you, you describe the Iron Triangle, which is a triad of entities that aims at the subversion of the American university. What does this triad consist of and how does it subvert and then to what end? Well, I, I use the Greek mythological term and I'm very hesitant to use that when I'm talking about it because people kind of go, what, what, what? Yeah. Greek mythology? Cerberus is a three-headed dog that was the guardian of the of Hades um, and guarded the river Styx, you know, Charon taking the, the dead over the river to, well, Cerberus three-headed dog but with one body. And that is the metaphor that I utilize. These are three heads and you think they're different entities, but they really only have one body. It's the same people. I described it to you a bit earlier when I talked about the, the triangle of uh, education schools, feeding into the uh, student affairs, the uh, these graduates of these programs, masters in higher education, and then these being members of the off-campus groups called ACPA and NASPA, National Association of Student Affairs Professionals, that kind of thing, that generate this ideology, keep that ideology uh, permeated with the ideology, and they believe themselves to be boldly transforming higher education. These are not faculty, but they set the academic standards for the education schools. So this is that triangle I referred to, mm. education schools, student affairs, and the off-campus clubs. And it is a circle of vice like this. And this is the three-headed dog. They all are the same people. Sometimes they're members of all three at the same time. And they receive awards for their activities. Um, I've read so many of their articles. I've read over 2,000 articles. I've got my own collection of their books. I've got over 150 books that I've read uh, or reviewed. And I explore their, their bibliographies. I download their dissertations. I look for their citations in their bibliographies. And there's an incredible sameness about all of it. I would let's move to some solutions. So we've, you know, thank you. For, you've, you've broken down a yeah. lot of the problems, how the system works, how it's yeah. incestuous and it keeps perpetuating itself. Yes. Um, this conveyor belt metaphor, which I love. Let's talk to some solutions though. So chart a course, if you could, for students, parents, faculty, government officials, where they can act in positive ways to resist the intellectual degradation of the university and then how to resist these radical racialism um, ideological assaults in the university community. Well, like, what do we do? Okay, information is is key uh, because there's a, a there's a flood of information out there and misinformation um, that they themselves put out because they don't want to be talking about the things that I've been talking about with you. They want to talk about other things, and one of the main things they do is hide behind the faculty, poor faculty. I mean, yeah, sure, there's some gadflies uh, in uh, in my colleague. I, I'm blessed with working some of the smartest people that I've ever known. Okay. Uh, in their various their various uh, topics and subject matter, they're fantastic. Um, and even the folks who are gadflies are pretty smart, because, but they believe in a system that is hermetically sealed off from reality as you and I know it. And they, they automatically you know, uh, make public statements and do research uh, based on this alternative reality that really bears hardly any resemblance to, to reality. So the first thing to recognize is when, let's not have a reflexive knee-jerk uh, reaction to the 
faculty is the problem with all of this. These, bureau these bureaucrats are hiding behind the faculty who are always attacking state legislators, for and, and they're arguing for self-monitoring the situation. Well, they're not the problem, and they don't recognize, they, my blessed colleagues, don't recognize that the enemy is already inside the wire. The enemy is not out there with state legislators or alumni or parents. Um, the uh, enemy is behind them in the wire and really basically undermining us uh, with respect. And they love the fact that the faculty are always out front making these public statements so that they can hide in their anonymity. Knowledge about that mechanism that I've described today is, is um, uh, the first step. The second step is for, and I'm talking about short term, uh, solutions, not the long-term reform solution. I think legislators uh, ought to be active like they are in you know, Texas and in Florida, God bless Florida, mm -hmm. and in uh, Iowa and places like that to roll back DEI uh, commissariats, which are bas basically the, uh, the Soviet NKVD's uh, political commissar system in, you know, injected into uh, higher education. They ought to be um, looking at the programs of DEI or critical racialism, not as subjects of study in their own right. I have no problem with studying critical racialism. I do it all the time myself. What I have a problem with and what everyone ought to have a problem with is the imposition of this in the bureaucracy as a position of the university. It's academically problematic. It's grounded in pseudoscience. And yet we have universities administrations adopting this perspective and requiring people like myself to take a loyalty oath in terms of affirming my commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, that sort of thing. I believe in merit, fairness, equality, respect, and results. That's my personal uh, mantra, and I, I advocate that in my own classes. So parents and students in particular, armed with the information of here's a threat situation that you are in, Here's how to recognize it. Here's tell one, red flag two, red flag three, red flag. And here's what you can do in that situation. Here are your rights. You don't give up your constitutional rights just because you're going to a private school. Um, you don't have, uh, you have rights to representation. You have rights that, uh, that are enshrined in our constitution, enshrined in the Office of Human Research Protections. Um, and be aware of that. And here's what I can do. And you can neutralize, emasculate these student affairs uh, brainwashers to the, and, and perhaps put them under investigation until such time as they can either be retrained or given a chance to pursue other career opportunities off the campus. That's number one. I, and I do give several uh, red flags that um, I can list a few of them if you'd like. We have yeah, time. that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're a student and you're on the campus, you've been, uh, you know, you're, you've been intoxicated with the spirit of acceptance and, and you've been told to make yourself vulnerable and oh, trust over here and trust over there, self-disclosure, you'll be invited to participate in something called a privilege walk. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, not really a game. It's a, they said it's a game, but it's not really a game. It's not ultimate Frisbee. It's not cornhole. It is a, what I call an interrogation game or, or revelation game. You're put in a line. Students are holding hands, put in a line, and you're asked a series of leading questions that's supposed to reveal your privilege. And if you have received this unearned advantage, you take a step forward. If you are not the beneficiary of this privilege, you take a step back and you ask a series of questions. So at the end, you are have a visual representation of you as privileged if you happen to have answered yes, or you as not privileged or disadvantaged if you happen to be at the back of the room. What does this mean? Well, what you've just submitted to is, a, is an interrogation and a survey answering questions that you would not answer on a survey because it's none of your business. 
you know, about your parents, about your personal life, about your history, but because it's a game putting you at your ease and you've been encouraged to trust these people, well, you'll answer the questions. And that information about you will be used against you, as in the privileged identification exploration model, one of these conveyor belts. Now we know who we need to target here, okay? That's one. Whenever you're invited or told to go to an event and they have odd names like difficult dialogues, courageous conversations, racial caucuses, brave spaces, safe spaces, or even just learning about race, you're going into a threat situation. Uh, and you need to be aware of what to look for, what to collect, so that you can then report that to the local establishment, which I encourage. You may get a pleasant surprise. And if not, certainly report all of this to your parents so that they can take the appropriate action. I love activist parents in this respect. And I've, I know students whose parents say, you send me this stuff and they're you know, lawyered up and ready yeah. to take action on that. Um, but you'll see a, a certain weirdness um, to these to these types of activities. They're all designed to make you feel vulnerable. Oh, I should say to uh, make yourself vulnerable, to make yourself susceptible to them. I will give you uh, an example that comes from Richard Delgado. His name is forever associated with critical race theory. But in his earlier incarnation, he was a lawyer who dealt with how cults recruit and what, what free speech implications you get from that. And so Richard Delgado appears in my book, not as a, not criticizing him, even though he's one of these uh, critical race theory types, but for praising him for what he found out about cults. Cults will do this. One cult in particular will bring a busload of potential recruits to a weekend uh, encampment. And when they get off the bus, the behavior modification experts with this particular cult will separate out the people who appear to be vulnerable and tractable to the cult's message. Um, and these people they call sheep. And these are usually upper middle class white kids who are, oh, look at all the wonderful, uh, this, I, I feel so accepted. Now, streetwise kids getting off the bus who are looking like this, Lance, again, I got, got cocking their eye to one side and uh -huh. saying, what's going on here? What, what's this all about? I don't, I don't think I like this. Well, those people are shunted off, they're called goats. And they're shunted off to another side. They're given a perfunctory kind of presentation and they're put on the bus back to town. So that leaves a group of people who have, whose um, compatriots may have been suspecting something uh, is not something uh, that's not good as a foot. They're all gone. And so now you have a core group of people who are susceptible to your message. This is essentially what they're doing in the colleges and universities, although can't, they can't be, they can't be, uh, you know, dis dis segregate people that, that overtly. Instead, they simply identify people who are, they call resistors, student resistors. I have a whole chapter in my book on student resistance and how those people are targeted for, for breaking them down. Um, they're, they're particularly, they're, they're critical thinkers, they're smart, and they're not going to take what you spoon feed them uh, without questions. Yeah. One, one last question, and then I would sure. love for you to you know, plug the book and where people can and find and follow you and everything stand there, is uh, the, the right often is reactionary. So, and then there's this, there's always this idea that I've been told I'm 40 years old for my whole life that, ah, oh, the pendulum swings. We go from left, we go to right. And that's, you know, that's how the election works. I'm of the opinion now that basically you're surrounded. We are surrounded. Right. And, and you, you even said some ratios of like 12 to one. Right. Well, at that point, I think, yes, anybody who's right of center in a university situation, like you are just surrounded on all sides. So I don't know if there is going to be this pendulum swing. What, what do you think is going to be the ultimate reaction to something like this, like, will there be a reaction and a pendulum swing back, do you think? Or do you think it's just going to crumble? I mean, where do you think this is all heads in the end? 
I, I think that um, once the, the curtain or the veil is torn back to reveal the viscera of this um, mechanism that is corrupting the universities, that these um, mediocrities, and I'll say this without any type of trepidation, these mediocrities are trying to be faculty and they're trying to use their access to students to coerce them. I think that once this is known generally, and the mechanism is revealed because you know tax protesters have to know that there's a first day there's a an IRS to protest against. Here's the mechanism. I don't like it. I you know now I can know how to ba battle it. But so once we understand the mechanism that's involved, that gives us some some traction, some purchase to begin to develop strategies to to uh, to work against that. I think there are too many good people, too many. Uh, really smart students who don't buy into this kind of thing. I had one student come to me a while. Uh, I've been about two or three years. Is he came to me? He was he was, an, he was a, an Indian student. He says, "You know, how some of these people in the classroom? Why do they feel like everyone has to act like a victim? What is this victimology that I keep hearing in this classroom?" Um, and I, I really had no explanation for him except for what kind of thing I told you to today, that this is what is being taught in the classroom. Um, do I have high hopes? High hope? No, I don't have high hopes. I have hopes and optimism that um, truth will out. And all we have to understand, we have to understand what that truth is. And we have to recognize that bashing the faculty and putting professors on watch lists. I'm a fan of watch lists. I think some professors need to be watched. Maybe I need to be watched. <laughs> but I have no problem with scrutiny. I mean, trans transparency, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Come into my classes, listen to what I teach. I have no problem with that at all. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are not like that. Um, and so I think that sunlight's the best disinfectant. I advocated for parents, I advocated for students. Um, and uh, once it becomes clear that this is what is going on, we can begin to formulate actions to put a stop to it. I love the state legislatures. Um, faculty hate them. But they have to understand that that's a false that's a false battle right there. Legislators should be after the bureaucracies, not the faculty. Faculty have a limited influence. Uh, some of it sometimes is a very deleterious influence, but it's limited to the to the classroom. Um, I mean, I'm not exempting the faculty who teach in these brainwash sessions who are in alliance with the, the co-curriculum. But uh, that that I hate. I'm, I'm sorry if that seems kind of. Like it's a dis, you know, disjointed, but that's my view. As long as the ship is going in the right direction yeah. or it's turning, then I think we're going to be okay. Well, and that's exactly what I think your book does is it is a bright ray of sunlight. So I would love for you to tell everybody where, where can they find, follow you, keep up with everything you're doing, your interviews, and then ultimately pick up the book. Well, I have to, I, this is this interview is is certainly uh, optimal because the book is uh, in audible version is, is out now. It came out yesterday in audible. It's on Kindle and it's in hardcover. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, I should say that people who don't like Amazon and don't want to purchase my book at Amazon, if they want to purchase, please go ahead and purchase at Amazon because you're not going to hurt Amazon by not purchasing, but you will help conservative publishers like Humanics and myself if you pre-order from Amazon because their rankings are are very important um, as the book's official launch date will be next Tuesday, May 16th. And uh, you can also buy it at Barnes and Noble um, and uh, wherever fine books are sold. If you if you want to um, see some more of my writings that they kind of kind of lay the groundwork, you can go to brutalminds.com. Same as the title, brutalminds, one word, dot com. And um, you'll find everything you need to know about the about Brutal Minds there. Beautiful. Stan, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate your time. We wish you and your book nothing but success and keep up the good fight with uh, being a, a ray of light and uh, disinfectant for all of us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor.